Hello and welcome to our class podcast for American Writers One, Beginnings to 1865. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host. Today we're discussing the poems of Emily Dickinson. This is the second of two conversations about Dickinson this week. Uh, so let's meet the rest of our panel, who are all being podcast panelists for the first time on the last day. <laughs> so thank you all very much. Uh, so introduce yourselves by telling us your name, your major, and since it's almost Thanksgiving, the best Thanksgiving side dish in your humble opinion. Um, how about Jules, you go first. So hello, my name is Jules. I'm an early education pre-K to four major. And the best Thanksgiving side dish is like mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah, hands down. That's a good one. All right, Riley, say hi. Hi, I'm Riley. I am an English and public relations double major, minor in pre-law. And I think the best Thanksgiving side dish is also mashed potatoes. I just love potatoes, so. Are we gravy people? Mashed potatoes with gravy, mashed potatoes without? Riley says without, Jules says with. Without. Yeah, Are you, Jules, is it brown gravy, white gravy? Uh, brown gravy. Okay, I wonder, I think white gravy is sort of regional. And I don't know, I wonder if my summer, my, my southernness puts me on white gravy territory. Okay, um, and then our last guest today is McKenna. McKenna, say hi. Hi, my name is McKenna. Um, I'm a communications major with an English minor, and I also like mashed potatoes. Get out! <laughs> so I'm also a vegetarian, so that's like what I load up on every oh, Thanksgiving. Oh, this makes sense to me. This makes sense. All right, well, fine. I am Dr. Tippin. My major is English, and my best Thanksgiving dish is not mashed potatoes, but potato casserole, which is sort of like potatoes and mushroom soup with a bunch of cheese and cornflakes on top. I don't know if you eat that where you come from, but man, oh man, that's the good one. <laughs> Are we dressing or stuffing people? Stuffing. Stuffing. Have you ever heard it called dressing? I think that's a Southern thing too. Okay. I don't <laughs> either. Neither? <laughs> I, like, I love stuffing. That is definitely like mashed potatoes and stuffing are like my top two and I like usually that's the only thing I eat even though I do eat turkey but like those are my two favorites yeah I didn't even ask about turkey because turkey schmirky who cares about turkey literally no one <laughs> says me <laughs> all right well let's get right into it uh, my first question for the group on Monday is the same one I'll ask you which is sort of like your like your prior knowledge what is it that you know or think you knew about Emily Dickinson before kind of reading this week? Go ahead, um, go first. Yeah, go McKenna. Oh, I was just gonna say, I'm pretty sure like, I just know like, I don't wanna call them stereotypes, but like kind of the common knowledge about her that she was like, everybody kind of thinks of her as like a hermit and she just kind of like sat in her room all day and wrote her poems. And I think, I don't know if this is common knowledge, but they didn't get published until like way after she was she had passed away. Correct. Yeah. Well, there's a we we will learn on Friday. <laughs> there were a few uh, pre pre. It's posthumous when you die. Prehumous. I don't know when she was alive. She published uh, at least six or seven poems, or or uh, there were six or seven instigate instance of publication of a couple of different poems. But anyway, there were some publication. But you're right. Most of her poems are published after her death by her kind of family um, that she particularly had uh, her best friend who was her brother's wife um, uh, who kind of did most of the, the publishing. Yeah, good. 
yeah, anything else that you knew about her before? I know there's a lot of stereotypes about her suffering from depression and anxiety, which I know like comes through a lot in some of her work because I did read a lot of her stuff in English in high school. So yeah. all of my English teachers would make jokes about like her being a shut-in and suffering from some severe mental illness that prevented her from kind of just leaving her house. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think, I think you're right. There is some evidence of a sad, there's a sadness. There's a sad person. We talked a little bit about how there's a little like seasonal depression uh, evidence. Like the spring poems are really wonderful and the winter poems are really sad. So I think there's a little of that going on. I can, I can see a little of the evidence of anxiety in the poems as well. But again, my question is always like, what is the standard that we're looking for, for like healthy social life of an 1860s woman? Like where, like, where do you want her to go? What is it that you want her to do um, besides work on her poems at home? I'm not really sure. So yeah, I don't know. I think there may be some exaggerated claims going on in that, in that but there's also some evidence. I don't know, read some biographies. I think it'll be fun for you. Jules, anything you wanna add kind of pre, pre-knowledge? Literally everything I know, they just like kept taking as they kept yeah. talking. <laughs> like I've like heard a lot of like, her being, you know, a very like solitary character of yeah. not really talking to many people, not leaving the house a lot. And like, she just wrote letters bunch and wrote poems. <laughs> the letters, I think let's not discount the letters. Um, we're gonna read one today. Someone asked a question about the letter. So I wanna make sure we talk about that today. Um, there's many, many more. Uh, I, I mean, are people mad at you for just texting your friends and not going out to see them? No, like it's the same thing, I think, right? She has this really rich relationship with a lot of people that she never gets to see. And I think that's fun. Fine. Uh, I want to normalize it. Hashtag normalize it. You know well, I mean? they're kind of normalized now that we're living in a pandemic. But yeah, <laughs> it's true. I have a lot more sympathy. I mean, I've been hanging out in my attic all alone, wearing sweatpants and lipstick. I mean, I'm a weirdo too. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> all right so the first question let's just sort of get into it this is the, the kind of the most specific question so I thought it would be a good one uh so and I can't remember who asked it but we're looking at poem number 1737 whose question was this that one was mine okay go for it describe what you're interested in here um well I really liked this poem I'm gonna look yeah. at my notes real quick and I think that it can be like viewed through like a lot of different lenses like the ones that I noted of it can either be viewed through like a more feminist lens because like she opens with like make me bearded like the man I think where's her exact something along the I don't have the book in front of me mm -hmm. um oh yeah 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 I see where you're talking about okay yeah I'm with you let's okay it first. I just wanted to make sure I had the right poem <laughs> I also wanted to make sure we had the right poem because as we know there's there's two different sets of numbering what mm -hmm. I find interesting about this one so I described this on on Monday but the two numbers are trying to kind of put them in the order that they were written and this is one where the numbers are very different so this is 1737 and then the other guy says it's 267 that's a a that fifteen hundred poems, one five zero zero. That's what that number. That's a big difference between where those poems fall. Mm -hmm. So that may be something interesting to talk about. Okay, McKenna, do you mind reading it or at least starting, and then maybe we'll take turns somewhere in the middle. Yeah, give me one second to get it up open here. Cool. 
Okay. So do you want me to start from the beginning? Yeah, do it. Okay. Um, so it's rearrange a wife's affections when they dislocate my brain, amputate my freckled bosom, make me bearded like the man. Do you want me to keep going? Okay. Blush my spirit in thy fastness, blush my unacknowledged clay. Seven years of troth have taught thee more than wifehood ever may. Love that never leaped its socket, trust entrenched in narrow pain, constant through fire awarded, anguish bear of anodyne. Burden born, so fair triumphant, none suspect me of the crown, for I wear the thorns till sunset, then my diadem put on. Big my secret, but it's bandaged, it will never get away, till the day its weary keeper leads its through the Leads it through to uh, yeah, leads yeah, yeah. it through the grieve to thee. Wow, I have no ideas. <laughs> There's so much about this poem that is it is quite mysterious. I yeah, I find it yeah. Okay, McKenna, what was interesting to you about this one? What's sort of the most interesting mystery, or is there anything that you've solved about the riddle of this poem? I don't know. I was looking at it through either more of like a feminist or even like more of a like a queer lens yeah, because yeah. that bit like big my secret but it's bandaged it will never get away and I thought that was interesting to include though like that particular stanza because I feel like in the beginning I feel like she's kind of talking about like not being able to have like a connection to being a wife in any sort yeah like I don't know if she's either talking about not having a connection to like a man or like more than wifehood like seven years of troth have taught me more than wifehood ever may I kind of feel like she's like being like, oh, that wife life, like just sitting at home and cooking for somebody, not for me. Yeah, there, I mean, in that seven years of troth is sort of like seven years of engagement or seven years of relationship that isn't the same as marriage. So that kind of relationship is more than wifehood. Yeah, I think there are some questions here about who is the, who, who is the audience of this poem? Um, what is the secret? Let's talk about that middle stanza number, the one about burden. Burden born so far triumphant, none suspect me of the crown. Uh, for I wear the thorns till sunset and then my diadem put on. So diadem is a, is a crown too. And then the thorns in quotation marks, does that remind, who's thor, a thor do you know anything about a thorn, a crown of thorns? Oh, I'm gonna get it all messed up, but like, when uh, Jesus on the cross, like he wore the crown, crown of thorns. Absolutely, right. So she can wear those, like that crown all day, mm -hmm. the crown of thorns all day. And then at night she puts on this other crown. What do you think about that image of like having a crown of thorns all day and a crown crown at night? I don't know if she's like talking about maybe like in the sense if she like was in a relationship with somebody or like a man or something so she like has to wear that like uncomfortable like yeah I don't know if that's like what maybe she's alluding to yeah yeah and so so that the sort of daylight performance is really uncomfortable mm -hmm. uh-huh yeah and that nobody can suspect then but wasn't it interesting I mean this is what's interesting to me is that the uncomfortable thing can go in public and it is not pretty but at mm -hmm. night then I put on the one that I love, like the crown that I love. Um, and that the burden is the good crown. 
instead of the thorny crown. I would think of a thorny crown as burdensome. I feel like in her writing, like that, the way that she like uses dashes, like all these words can mean so many different things. Right. Like I was even looking in the stanza above, like anguish is just like that word and then a dash, like that can mean so many different things. Yes. Okay, yeah, let's look at that one. Love that never leaped its socket. Let's start there. What the heck does that mean? Love that never leaped its socket? What? Love that like never blossomed into anything more? Yeah, so like an an unacted upon love. Mm -hmm. Love that never like left. Uh, I I, I thought of electricity there, but then I thought 1860s, do we have electrical sockets? Maybe that's not what we're talking about. Jules, you're like, no, that's definitely not correct. Uh, and then uh, constancy through fire awarded anguish. So does the fire award me anguish? I'm awarded with anguish? What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you're right, there could be a totally different way to read that because of those dashes and separate um, things. Let me hear from some other folks on the panel. Riley, what do you got a lot of nods going on? What are you thinking about? I agree with all that's being said. I feel like the last like three stanzas are really good like metaphors for being closeted. Yeah. Um, but what really drew my attention was make me bearded like a man. Of I feel course. like a lot of queer women will queer code within their writing from the perspective of a man or stating their desires of like wanting to be a man because they want to have that emotional connection with a woman that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily um it's kind of frowned upon in their society to have that connection so they're expressing that desire to be a man because at least then that would be socially acceptable for them to do that yeah, and I don't, I think bearded like a man and also amputate my bosom. I, I can't, I don't think we can misread that, <laughs> right? I mean, that's pretty clear. That's pretty direct. I wonder too, we talked about this in another class that I teach where we read um, Little Women. Did you all watch Little Women, the movie that came out this last year? It was really good. It's a good adaptation. Um, but one of the things we talked a lot about there is that like, sometimes when she would talk about wanting to be a man, it was maybe more like gender than sexuality. Mm-hmm. Those were kind of two different things. And it might be interesting to, to kind of keep those apart. Um, that when she sort of had to look out at her world and decide who had power and who had choice and who had freedom and who had decision-making powers, it was boys, right? And so her, who got to be loud and who got to run and who got to take care of other people, right? Those were all masculine qualities that she wanted. So I don't know, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think the wifeness, the starting with wife and talking about wifehood uh, implies sexuality or at least partnership, like a, a romantic attractive kind of partnership. I don't know. Um, that was sort of the next question as well. And Riley, I'm guessing this was your question too, to talk a little bit more about homoerotic undertones in other poems. Um, you didn't specify any, but is there another one that you're thinking of? Uh, let me take a look at my notes. I actually kind of thought that um, I agree with 1737 being one, but I also kind of thought that 84 kind of seemed. Okay. 84. Way back there. Which one's that? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so this seems like a love poem. 
for for a female yeah do you want to read it riley sure uh her breast is fit for pearls but i was not a diver her brow is fit for thrones but i have not a crest her home her heart is fit for home i a sparrow build there sweet of twigs and twine my perennial nest okay talk to me about that one what makes you think this has homoerotic undertones so I definitely feel like it's it's clearly written about a woman yeah as shown by the pronouns but I feel like when she says her breast is fit for pearls but I was not a diver her brow is fit for thrones but I have not a crest she's saying sort of um she is worthy of so much but I can't give it to her because I am not worthy of that and that to yeah. me equates like I'm not a man so I can't give her that because mm -hmm. that's frowned upon for women too yeah yeah not a diver diver capitalized and in quotation marks do you have any sense of like what that metaphor might mean I mean I understand what it's like her breast is fit for pearls it's like it's beautiful and she deserves nice things. Mm -hmm. But like, what does the diver part mean? Any guess? If you're diving for pearls, um, well, pearls are an object of great wealth and men are usually the ones who are the breadwinners who bring uh, in that wealth, so. That's a that's good point. That is a good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that it seems to always be, I mean, not always, I'm just thinking about the other things that I've, uh, watched or like other media that I've consumed about same-sex relationships in the deep past that one of the main concerns is like how do we pay for our lives mm -hmm. if we're not allowed to own property or you know or that we're you know we don't have a great inheritance how do we actually survive um, that could be it I was wondering if there was also maybe like a like a sexual thing of a diver I don't know yeah I think it could be right <laughs> as that too <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, thrones and a crest, right? I don't have a crest. I don't have a, I don't have that name. So both of those do have that connection to money and wealth though, money and inherited wealth. So I think that's a, that's a solid reading. It might have nothing to do with sex at all. It might only have to do with like financial security, <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure. Tell me about the last part though. It, it ends really sweetly. Um, yeah. what, what do you think about that last bit, Riley? So she says her heart is fit for home. I, a sparrow, build their suite of twigs and twine, my perennial nest. So yeah. back to the not really being able to provide. She's saying I can't provide much because as a woman, I can't hold property, but I can give you this. So I yeah. hope this And it's a really nice thing. I can, I can live in your, in your heart. I, like love is the thing I can give you. That may be it, but it's a really nice love a perennial love and all day, every day, all year long, every year. Oh, it's really nice. I like it. Uh, I was looking at 199 on that same page uh, about wife. I am wife. I finished that, that other state. I'm czar. I'm woman now. It's safer so. How odd the girl's life looks behind this soft eclipse. I think that earth all uh, feels so to folks in heaven. Now, this being comfort, then that other kind was pain, but why compare? I'm wife, stop there. Uh, she's not a wife, like we know that. She didn't become a wife to anyone. <laughs> so I wonder if this is kind of like a persona poem, if she's maybe speaking in the voice 
that maybe she's supposed to have. I'm a wife. I'm now a woman. When I look at my girl's life, it feels like looking down on earth from heaven. Um, and now I'm comfortable. And before I was in pain. So I'm a wife. Everything's better now. Yay. <laughs> what do you make of this poem? I kind of read it as um, she's writing it from the perspective of how sort of women are supposed to be acknowledged um, according to their relationship to men in society. Yeah, yeah. And I think she's talking about how being married kind of offers that security in society, mm -hmm. but at what cost? Mm -hmm. good, but on the flip side, she's also talking about how lonely it is to be alone and not be married at all. Yeah, yeah. I think I see that in a couple of different kinds of poems, right? That there is a little bit of a, uh, yeah, a loneliness. And, and even in the poem we just read, right, about, you know, wanting to be a sparrow inside someone's heart. I mean, I think that that kind of makes that point a little bit clearer. Yeah, I do think there's something interesting, though, at the end of this last this poem 199 that why compare uh, sort of like don't think about it. Just stop that thought. Um, you might have another thought. There might be something else, but don't don't think about it. So if we can look at that poem and say, oh, that's the voice of someone else. Do you think we should look at other poems as maybe in the voice of someone else? Let's look at 84 again. Let's say she's not writing about herself. Is there some other speaker who could be writing or you know what I mean? Like, is there some other voice that could be having those thoughts that it's not her? I do think that is possible. Is that possible? I have kind of noticed that she does write from what appears to, to be the male perspective quite frequently. Yeah. Okay. Can you give another example of that, Riley? Um, let's see if I can find one. I'm not poking holes in your homoerotic theory. I think you're probably no, no, right. No. I just want to, <laughs> or at least a, a non-gendered, or you know what I mean? Yeah, like they're either non-gendered, and she uses a lot of like I pronouns, right? Me, but if they're not gendered, it seems like she's writing about women and uses female pronouns, but it seems like it would have to be something written from the male perspective because mm. it wouldn't have been acceptable for her to write it from her own perspective or from another woman's perspective. That makes sense, right? So any criticism that she might receive for a poem like Her Breast is Fit for Pearls, she could maybe hide by saying, oh, well, this is about, you know, this is from some other perspective, not my own. And it could be just as easily discarded as that, yeah. Jules, what's sort of your reaction to these poems we've been talking about so far? I definitely think you can look at her poems by either like viewing it as her own, like she's the one saying it, but there is also the view of she might be making up this persona or having sort of like a story to yeah. make it look, you know, more societally like appropriate. Yeah. And I feel like I'm like looking at the um, her breast is fit for pearls poem and I just find it like so cute because I think it's like such a like a sweet love poem that I feel like I, I can't picture it from like a different perspective other than hers just because of like 
the wording of it and like how kind of like the way she's talking so I feel like there are a few poems that like you can say like oh well it wasn't really her speaking it was you know the story that she made up and this there's background to it but I feel like with this one it's so raw and so sweet that it's like it has like it has to be her talking (laughs) (laughs) I get it I get it I think that's always a danger in poetry reading though is to assume that the speaker is the the poet. Um, And I think even just looking at this numbering system we've created, it's so important for us as readers of Dickinson to think that we can pinpoint her in every poem, like her life and her biography and her moment in each poem. And I don't know if we should do that or not. I really am, I'm conflicted. Uh, tell me what you think about that. How important is it to, to do that, to, to connect that biography, to say things like Dickinson was a lesbian or to say Dickinson was a non-binary person? Like, what is it that, how does that matter? Or, or do you think it does? I personally feel like go ahead Jules. I didn't know I didn't know who the question was pointed at towards for anybody (laughs) um I like I feel like to a certain extent like you can't really you can't pinpoint it because you don't know where she's coming from when she writes it and you don't know um like what was happening in her life at the time when she was writing it so in overall like looking at her poems in general like it does make sense that you can't say oh no she was lesbian she had a wife but she couldn't tell anyone that's why everyone thought she was single um but then you can look at you know certain things and assume and I feel like that's the only thing you can do is just assume yeah Yeah. I think that's kind of like the fun but kind of annoying part (laughs) of it yeah what do you all think sort of biographic like why do we have to put the biography together I agree with that to some extent as well I feel like as somebody who also writes a lot I feel like even subconsciously when you don't mean to do it you pour a lot of yourself into what you're writing so I know um it does bring up that speculation of oh well is are they writing from experience or are they writing just to write something yes good you want to you want to take a look at what's happening in that person's life and also what they're writing, but not too critically, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And even though, you know, thinking about the other people we've read in this semester, we had questions about like Walt Whitman's sexuality, but we didn't go into it quite so deeply. You know what I mean? We had <laughs> we had questions about like other people's biographies, but we didn't really we didn't really need them to be able to understand the work that's in front of us. So I wonder how much of that is something that we add to it because she's such an interesting character and we've sort of made her more interesting than, than I wonder if she needs to be. I don't know, but I love her poetry. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> um, okay, let's go to, how are we doing on time? We're doing great. We have lots of time. Uh, Jules, let's go to your question and then maybe we can pick up some other, some other poems that were interesting to us in the middle. Uh, so tell us what you wanted to talk about, Jules. Um, so I like thought it was really interesting that they did include the letters um, yeah. and like the reading about her. Um, and it wasn't just this one with her sister-in-law. But I thought this one was, I like this one the more. I like this one more. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and like sort of to like answer my own question I guess you could say like how I thought of it was um that like it brought a person to the like it made her seem more like a person because the fact that like I know like because she didn't like letter not letter (laughs) she didn't like title any of her poems and all of her poems have these numbers that people put on trying to order them so like this gives like a yeah there is someone writing this instead of just like here's a random poem um -hmm. and like I really like that it was like a revision kind of letter because she was like hey this is my poem what are your thoughts okay you didn't respond you didn't like the here's the second stanza you know I'll change it and then like the kind of banter that happens that it's she's like I hope you I hope this one pleases you more of that kind of aspect and I just thought it was interesting it Um, is isn't it and and that that like they would go back and forth so much uh, on revising the poem, which makes me think again, and maybe we can talk about this definitely on Friday, but maybe a little bit before we leave, her attitude towards like being read or being published. Um, I think we get the idea that these are all very secret poems that she kept just for herself to reveal her most deepest secret, most thoughts. Uh, but they went out to people and they were workshopped. And uh, Riley, I wonder if you've had a workshop experience and <laughs> sort of creative writing style. Um, um, McKenna, did you also tell me your creative writing as well? No, just no. English. Okay, so sorry. Yeah, so I mean, if you've been in a creative writing workshop, what is it like to get feedback on your poetry? I haven't really been in a workshop per yeah. se, but I also, I see where she's coming from. I when I share things that I've been working on, it's not necessarily because I'd like for it to be published. It's more because I just want it to be the best it can be. And I can, I, when I work on something, I know the ins and outs of it. I understand what I'm saying, but I want to get feedback from other people so I can make sure that I'm making my points clearly. And that other, I, I like to see what other people are interpreting what I'm saying. So I feel like, um writers are also very much perfectionists with their work they want it to be the best it can be so I don't know if she necessarily wanted it to be something super public to everybody else but right I kind of see it as she just wanted it to be the best it could be for herself because I know when I write there are times I will write for other people but it's mostly just for me (laughs) Yeah, I get that. And that it, it's like a profession, maybe. Yeah. Like she approaches her writer or writing as, as kind of like professional. Even if it's not published, it's still uh, a vocation, right? An activity, uh, something that deserves attention and perfection. Yeah, good. Anything else? Um, so I, no- I note that like I had for yeah, this was also um, that like, Susan like does show her credibility to like help her with Mm -hmm. editing these poems by like kind of making a poem in her response (laughs) like because she says how um she kind of just likes the first stanza on its own and she goes on and says strange things always go alone as there is only one Gabriel and one son um you never made appear for that verse like I think and she uses a lot more figurative language inside of her response and I just thought that was like really interesting really fun it's also rhyming alone sun one 
like the ends of each of those dashed sections is kind of like a rhyme as well. Look at all those dang dashes. They both write with all those dang dashes. The first version, no dashes. By the time we get to the end, dashes every third word. Um, what the heck? <laughs> what do you make of those dashes? They get students, students are like fascinating with the dashes. As soon as they see a Dickinson poem, they're like, ooh, look out, I'm writing all the dashes. Um, what do you make of them? I don't know if they were like a style choice or if they stood for like something more. Like, I don't, I don't know if they're just like what was popular in writing at the time because like I know other poets have done that too or if it was like a specific choice that she was making while she was writing. When you read our article for Friday, I think it's going to suggest that uh, no. <laughs> it's, it's part of the, the transcription from handwriting to, to make them publishable that in her handwriting, it's really not clear what's a comma, what's a period, what's a dash, because they all look pretty similar <laughs> just because of her handwriting style. So it can be kind of hard to tell. Um, and so that has to be an editor's choice. An editor has to look at that handwriting and decide, is that a comma, is that a period, is that a dash? Um, and sometimes it's not very clear. I don't know, do you have other reactions to them? They definitely make it hard to read sometimes and get like the sentence sense. I think I think you mentioning how like it's sort of in the transcription of yeah. like handwriting. It kind of makes me think of like what else might have been lost or what was added in to make it make more sense because I know like I have sloppy handwriting and mm -hmm. sometimes people read and put random words in to make it make mm -hmm. more sense so mm -hmm. I wonder like what ha might have been accidentally added or what now doesn't have the same meaning because now there's a dash instead of a period or things yeah. like that yeah and I think in, in like the music notes of the English language a dash and a period are very different uh, they mean very different things and they make sense out of the parts of phrases very differently, you know, depending on how that goes. Um, the article that we're going to read on Friday suggests that maybe we've taken that too far and that probably uh, like editors are not messing with it as much as we think. Um, I also have some examples of her handwriting that we can look at on Friday. If you wanted to do a little look ahead, um, there's also some really artistic representations of her handwritten poems. Um, you might Google uh, envelope poems and um, they're basically just like scraps of paper that she picked up and wrote a poem on the back of. So there's a beautiful one that is about a house and you know how an open envelope kind of looks like a house? And it's really cute. <laughs> so yeah, check it out, check it out. Uh, there's also an artist who's done things like taken out all of the words and just like um, embroidered the dashes. And so it's like a, a, an embroidery piece of just the dashes of a poem. That's cute, right? <laughs> I find that so cute. I feel like there's so many dashes and all of this. <laughs> like, it, it has to look interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, and then we get some that don't, right? So, well, I don't know. Uh, like tell the truth, but tell it slant. Has no punctuation except for a dash at the first line and the second line. Uh, that's kind of, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot to think about in there. We still have plenty of time. Is there something else you'd like to talk about? I've got some thoughts on publication and poetry. 
like what is a poet and what does a poet do? We could talk about death some more. We could talk about love some more. What are you interested in? Or do you have a favorite poem you just want to read and appreciate? Yeah. I really like the poem. It was like 1545 and then the other version was 1577. Yes, I was just looking at that one. It's I am on that page. Uh 1497 in our in our collection. Yeah, McKenna, what's interesting about this poem? Um I just really like I thought it was so ahead of her time like how she opened it with like the Bible is an antique volume written by faded men and I thought that like like knowing what we do about her I thought that was like a really powerful way to open a poem especially like for society at that time <clears throat> yeah it's pretty revolutionary maybe even blasphemous if you wanted to go <laughs> that far um yeah Eden and the ancient homestead Satan the brigadier Judas the great defaulter David the troubadour sin a distinguished precipice others must resist uh boys that believe are lonesome other boys are lost what, uh, all the boys, I don't know. <laughs> I know there's a lot like, and I thought that was so interesting. Like the style of it is really unlike any, a lot of her other poems. Yeah. Like it has the dashes, but I feel like they're used in very, like the dashes seem to make sense in this poem because they it has do. like Eden and then dash almost like she's like defining things. It's a colon almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But clearly there's some, there's some questions there about like what religion is and what we are supposed to do with it. And that's not the only one, right? There are quite a few poems that have that as a theme of, um, I don't know. And I wonder if it's again, that transcendental thing where like there's an appreciation of God in nature, right? We talked about on Monday, the one about um, some hold the Sabbath at church, but I sit on my porch and look at birds. <laughs> like There's that appreciation of God in nature, but a pretty, solid critique of the structures of religion mm -hmm. right like this one about the bible can you think of another example like that that might be kind of questioning the structures of religion the poem 1078 written down i'm not sure I know, I know that one talks about death, but I don't know if it mentions anything about religion. Mm. It does end with eternity. Mm -hmm. She uses eternity. I noticed, I feel like I know I wrote that down too. She uses the word eternity very often. That's a good point. And I would have to maybe do some, so one of my favorite subspecialties is digital humanities where you sort of use computers to do reading. So what I would love to do is like put everything she ever wrote into the little computer and then like control F eternity and find how many times in what situations, let's compare them one by one, what's next to eternity every time. Um, there's lots of cool, there are lots of things that can do that. So it will be fun to find out. Yeah, maybe that's another good question to kind of sum up, uh, to sum up our conversation. Were there other common themes or words or thoughts that, that permeated through lots of different poems. Eternity seems like a good question to be asking. I feel like on a different, kind of related to eternity, I really liked 449 uh -huh. in regards to eternity because I kind of interpreted that as when we die, it doesn't really matter um, 
to anybody else what we live for because the memory of us sort of just lives and dies with the people that we knew and at the end of the day we are after we've passed just decaying bones in the ground and old tombstones that nobody really pays attention to so yes the moth reached our lips and covered up our names we just go away eventually yeah. Yeah, and that goes pretty well with that uh, the the alabaster. There was another one we read on Wednesday or on Monday, kind of about death and how death is sort of just the end. That's the end. That's kind of a question about that one. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, you've all done so well. I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Um, do you have any recommendations? Oh, wait, I have one more question before we go there. Um, I want to ask you <laughs> about like her, her place in the canon. Why, even though she did not publish a lot when she was alive, and lots of this kind of publication came out afterwards, and she becomes really important to us much later, what do you think about that? Like the fact that she's not a very popular poet in her time. Does that mean we shouldn't study her? Does that mean we should? Tell me a little bit about what you think. I don't know if it gives it like we should or shouldn't, but I know like that is a very common theme throughout yeah. poems and books and things that we've read, at least in this class of how during their time, they weren't really popular or they weren't known for this um, or that was like the thing they did, you know, just for fun. And then it, becomes published and it's really popular after they die so yeah. I feel like it just it happened to her again or it's just another person it happened to and I don't know if there's a reason why but yeah and it often works opposite of how you expect it so remember Rebecca Harding Davis ultra popular hugely popular and then mostly forgotten and then Dickinson absolutely not popular <laughs> right kind of hidden uh then becomes flip side the best poet america has ever had um and so i sometimes wonder if we hold popularity against people so that we don't care uh in fact that's kind of a mark against us to be popular any reactions to that in the last 30 seconds i know especially things that are popular among women that's the one that gets me every time. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I teased the end too soon. Um, so my recommendations are go read of Dickinson biography. There are many uh, and I think they're mostly pretty great. Uh, there is a ton of Dickinson fiction. If you wanna like check out like a fictionalized story of her, I made a, uh, I found a list um, that I posted on our Brightspace page, so you can check that out later. But I recommend Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, she has a novel or a collection of short stories called Wild Nights, which is based on a Dickinson poem called Wild Nights. The Dickinson story is weird AF. It is very weird. I once assigned it to students and they were like, Tippin, what did you make us read? It is creepy, it is weird. So, I mean, good luck. But the, the whole collection is kind of focusing on uh, stories about uh, famous authors and this famous author kind of thinking about what it would be like to kind of bring those people back and interact with them. And Emily Dickinson comes in the form of a robot. Uh, and it's really pretty cool. So I recommend it. It's definitely weird. You've been warned, but I think you'll like it. Do you have any recommendations, things people should read, watch, listen to, maybe related to this topic? 
Anything good? I'm sort of thinking in terms of music. I don't really watch a lot of like TV or movies. Mm-hmm. So I have heard the Dickinson show by Apple is very good. It's been very well received. Um, I haven't watched it yet. I hope to at some point. But um, I think just indie folk as a genre in itself is very poetic. So it kind of reminds me of her poetry because there are a lot of themes of just love and death and questioning yes do you have a a particular song that you're thinking of or a particular artist not a particular song a particular album I think of um the I forget where we were album by Ben Howard okay for writing I'm trying to remember the song as soon as you started talking it reminded me of the one where like I wish we were vampires or is it maybe if we were vampires it doesn't matter I'll I'll think of it some other day (laughs) uh okay McKenna you got anything you want to recommend I don't know I feel like if you've read Emily Dickinson you've probably read Mary Oliver but if you like really like Emily Dickinson they're like very similar just Mary Oliver's a little more contemporary because she was around in like the 70s yeah so she's like way more like she's not as like eternal like eternity questioning Mary Oliver is much more like nature-based but it's still like really calming poetry to read I feel like so if you like Emily Dickinson you'd probably like her yes her most famous line is something like what are you going to do with this one wild life you have or something like that mm-hmm. very close yes um I would similarly recommend uh Jane Kenyon for the same reasons Jane Kenyon, Mary Oliver, those are wonderful folks. Uh, Jules, anything you want to recommend? I can't think of any. (laughs) Sounds good. That sounds good. Can you recommend uh, a Thanksgiving uh, activity or a Thanksgiving film? You get a Christmas movie. What are you going to do with your week off? Um, I will probably be catching up on a lot of sleep. So I recommend sleeping. Um, <laughs> melatonin, a little lavender spray on your pillow, and go to sleep. Uh, yeah, being at home is always fun. So, you know, I get to sleep in my own bed and that kind of yes, situation. Yes. <laughs> well, good. All right. Well, thank you all. This has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you being here. I'm trying to find my toolbar that stops the recording, and I'm going to stop it now. Thanks for listening.